to Nothing Never Happens, a radical pedagogy podcast. Today, we are speaking with Wayne Yang, who is a scholar and organizer. Um, Professor Yang's work transforms the lines between these domains of scholarship and organizing, and I think I can say with confidence, spurs his many readers and students to engage the world in that same kind of project. With over 15 years of experience as a high school teacher in Oakland, California, and as a current professor of ethnic studies at UC San Diego, Professor Yang employs multiple qualitative methodologies in his research and activism, from youth participatory action research, to ethnographies of youth popular culture, to ethnographies of central administration, to critical cartographic methods that, sorry, to critical cartographic methods. His work on settler colonialism and ghetto colonialism within university initiatives to liberal so-called community engagement have been particularly powerful in calling educators to methods of refusal that, quote, make transparent the meta-narrative of knowledge production and which, quote again, generate territories that colonial knowledge endeavors, that colonial knowledge endeavors to settle and close and domesticate. And that's a quote from the article Unbecoming Plays which was co-written with Eve Tuck. As an aside here, I'll say that in my work with college debaters, I've seen firsthand how the articles refusing research and decolonization is not a metaphor, both of which are co-written again um, by Professor Yang and Eve Tuck, how those articles have been embraced and celebrated by many, many students, scholar activists working to transform the norms around knowledge production, pain pedagogies, and discourses of expertise in their institutions. And finally, um, alongside and inseparable from all of his published work, Professor Yang is the co-founder of the nonprofit youth development organization, Avenues Project, and the co-founder of East Oakland Community School. He is the author of A Third University is Possible, and with Eve Tuck, Professor Yang has completed an edited book, Youth Resistance, Research, and Theories of Change. His current book manuscript, Organizing the Common Sense, Popular Culture and School Reform, examines strategies for organizing in three educational landscapes, youth, community, and bureaucracy. Welcome, Professor Yang. We're so happy to have you on the podcast. Well, thank you so much, and thank you for that introduction. Um, probably the best one I've heard ever. I've never thought through all those things at, in one paragraph. <laughs> well, thank you so much for being here. Um, Wayne, you have helped me, this is Tina, you have helped me rethink a lot of what I've had in my head and in my mouth about um, decolonization, you know, anti-D and post-colonization. Uh, and that article that Lucia just mentioned in the introduction that you co-wrote with Eve Tuck, uh, decolonization, is not, decolonization is not a metaphor. Uh, we'd like you to start off by talking more about what you mean by that, because um, set it in context for us, because I think for our hearers, this is sort of a foundational um, theory in your writing. Thanks for asking about that. It's funny, I was just on the phone with Eve uh, yesterday and um, we happened to be talking about it. Um, we don't talk about that article all the time because it was our first thing we ever co-wrote together. It's a text um, from 10 years ago now. And, and it was written for a very specific context. I mean, it was um, during or towards the end of the Occupy movement. Um, 
it was when people were really starting to use the word decolonization again, I'll say, because it's been used many times in history, but again, particularly in North America. And um, so I think we were in the journal decolonization was, was being founded and it, the article appears in there. So um, at the time we just felt like it was really important to intervene in the use of the word decolonization at the time. So um, I, I feel like people use it very many different ways. Um, Eve said something like, if she were to rewrite it, uh, she would say, she'd probably title it decolonization is not only a metaphor. <laughs> because <laughs> it certainly is and it can be used that way. Um, so, uh, and I guess just to contrast it with other contexts. So again, that, that was a time period when people were starting to use it as sort of a nice alternative to let's say social justice or some other word. Um, but, you know, decolonization in the 20th century, or uh, I, I guess you would call them political colonies, um, such as uh, characterized um, British and European colonies in the Americas and Africa, um, in Asia, people really thought about it as, um, as actually revolution and starting new nation states. And North America is just a very good, different context, I think, in that respect. Um, but I think it's been used that way. And then by Latin Americanists, when they talk about decoloniality, they're saying, well, even after nation states were created, there's still a type of colonization or coloniality that is happening. And I, I think at that point, they're talking about the coloniality of knowledge, of, of culture. Um, and so when they're talking about decoloniality, they're not necessarily talking about land. Um, but I think what they're talking about is completely legitimate. And I think all these all these ways that people talk about decolonization as legitimate. Um, and I guess in my own context, um, writing at that time, I mean, in places like Oakland, California, um, where it's you know, probably best known for the Black Panthers um, originated there. Um, actually, they originated in North Carolina, but well, Oakland likes to claim them. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, people use decolonization on the street. I mean, it's a common word. And it is, so it is not just an academic word. And, um, and so for me, writing, having the opportunity to write about it is, uh, you know, was a, was sort of a, a big responsibility. Um, I don't think we got it completely right. I, I'm, I'm, I'm surprised in some ways that the article has lived this long, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so I think that's the context. Um, and so writing for a specific political moment, we were really interested in making sure that people, when using that word, they were at least thinking about land and mm -hmm. they were at least thinking about abolition. That, that was really where we wanted to go. Um, and I think that's why the focus on land is so um, direct and so, um, so emphasized in that particular piece. Yeah. Yeah, and you talk about the rematriation of the land. Oh, yeah. And uh, one of the things you say in A Third University is possible. Um, decolonization is, put bluntly, the rematriation of land, the regeneration of relations, and the forwarding of indigenous black and queer futures, a process that requires countering what power seems to be up to. To take effective decolonizing action, we must then have a theory of action that accounts for the uh, perme permeability of the apparatuses of power 
and the fact that neo-colonial systems inadvertently support decolonizing agendas. This manuscript presents a theory of action in assemblage, the cyborg. So there's a lot in that. <laughs> so, um, but uh, one of the things I, that's really important from this discussion of, um, decoloni of decolonization is, you know, I've been using terms like, or phrases like, oh, I need to decolonize my syllabus, or I need to decolonize our religious studies curriculum. And your work helped me sort of um, dig a little deeper into that and uh, realize what the what the systemic issues are and and my responsibility to the, those histories and uh, that are present. I love what you just said. I mean, and also I love that you're using it that way. Um, I definitely am not the decolonization language police. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, so I love that you're, you're thinking about decolonizing religious studies or decolonizing a syllabus. Um, I think sometimes our piece is used in a way where people say, don't use that word that way. And mm -hmm. um, I, that is not, that was not necessarily our intent. Uh, it definitely was part of our intent at the time. I, I'll admit that, but, but things have, again, it's been 10 years. And um, I think rematriation is one of those really neat words. Um, I, I, I also want to say, you know, I don't think any of my writing is are my, is, are my own ideas. You know, I, Audre Lorde has this great phrase, you know, there are no new ideas, only new ways of making them felt. And um, I just, I feel like people tell me things, they tell me stories, they whisper things in your ear to pass along to someone else, like they weren't meant for me. And I, I see my writing as that. Um, but rematriation in, in that respect. So there's this really neat group, um, a native run, um, a, a, a land trust that is run by two native women, uh, Karina Gold and Janelle LaRose in Oakland, and it's called Sagoria Tay. Um, and they have been rematriating land. So they have all these parcels of land that, that they steward. Um, and they also um, even have relationships to land that is not officially designated in their stewardship of the trust. But, you know, these, these um, you know, when people talk about, so one, one interesting thing about rematriation as opposed to repatriation is people have to stop and ask, what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> and um, rather than give an answer, I think that is, it's to move people away from thinking they know what it means. Because when you talk about land, everyone freaks out because they're thinking about property. So they think mm -hmm. you're talking about stealing people's property and giving it to somebody else, right? And I'm not saying that can't be part of it, <laughs> to be honest, but, <laughs> but, um, but rematriation um, for um, Sagoria Tay Land Trust is about repairing the land and also repairing human relationships to it. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't have to be a property relation. So some of these parcels of land are in their trust and some of them are actually owned still by other people. Like there's this really amazing, I um, can't remember the name of the arboretum. That is a commercial arboretum. They hire primarily, in East Oakland, they hire primarily uh, people from the neighborhood, many of whom um, have been previously incarcerated. And they, they send plants all around the country. Um, but they decided that this land is going to return to the Ohlone, to, to, um, to Sogoria, Land Trust and they're 
you know, but so it's this really interesting way where they have used the power of property to subvert property. Um, and, and there's many examples of that. Um, I, I think going back to decolonization then, um, the, when we, when we talk about land, we're not just talking about property or this sort of materiality and physicality of land. You know, land is, is um, relationships, uh, non-human and human persons. Um, it's water, it's air, it's, it's all those things. Um, and in that respect, it gets back to, I think, my own, I want to say, organizing and political training in Oakland, which is, it gets to blackness to me. It, it gets back to um, decolonization as it is thought about, I think, by you know, legacies of uh, black radical thinkers and, and activists and organizers. And Oakland is um, a, a kind of a placeholder for so much with Black Panthers, with gentrification, um, you know, the, the cost of living in the San Francisco area. Um, all the current films based in Oakland. So it's a neat uh, town, that's for sure. I have a question that sort of builds on some of what we've been talking about. Um, so this is partly my observation about um, about your about some of your work. It, to me, it seems like your research um, tends to be so transformational because of how it tries to get out of some of the feedback loops academics can get wound into and get at something more material and historical, which is colonization. Um, and I tend to see the influence of this work a lot in the worlds of college debate competition where debaters will cite articles by you and Tuck, like Tuck and Yang is like a sort of one syllable like <laughs> word that gets passed around. Um, it's like a meme um, and they, they say, Tugging it in order to underline how the, another team's, their competing team's research gets commodified and circulated for capital or whiteness or settler logic or accuse another team of using decolonization in a way that erases decolonization efforts on the ground. Um, so when I think about this one, I'm just curious about what you think about that circulation of your work. Um, but I'm also thinking particularly, and this is to turn our conversation to the like university and high school classrooms in particular, so much of pedagogy involves um, the discursive. And I'm wondering if refusals of metaphors or subsuming um, material struggles into metaphors, ab abstraction is, is something that, um, that we are often inclined to, or that happens. What does it look like to refuse that in the space of the classroom for you? Oh, wow. Those are two really great questions. Well, so first the debate team thing is uh, relatively new information for me. <laughs> uh, I, I did meet uh, one of our students at UC San Diego who coaches a debate team at one of the local high schools. And I, um, and I understand they almost have, they almost use these things like Pokemon cards, right? They just sort of throw them down <laughs> you know? and they transform like Pokemon, you know, like Tuck and Yang, this version, and then this version, and this version. So it, it's kind of, um, um, I don't know what to call it, like uh, embarrassing, <laughs> humbling. <laughs> so, um, and I, I think that's interesting. I, I, um, I mean, I think texts always exceed the author. That's something my colleague, Sarah Kaplan says. Um, she's a black feminist scholar um, on reproduction. And she says the text always exceeds the author. And, and so I, I think if these are being used like Pokemon cards, they're way beyond what, what 
we ever could have imagined. Um, I, I do um, like that they circulate, some of these things are able to circulate beyond the academy because writing, I think academic writing is like any kind of art. You know, it's, it's a genre and the genre provides opportunities to express for people who are paying attention to that genre, but it's also very limited by that genre, right? And um, it's like gallery art, I guess is what artists would say, you know? <laughs> so you have gallery art in Manhattan um, and, um, and it, it creates all these false dichotomies between what has value and what doesn't have value. So, um, so it's interesting to see how things circulate and when they have value and when they don't. Um, I feel now, again, we wrote this when we were, I think like you, Lucia, like new professors, not sure, very, very agnostic about the university and confident university was very agnostic about us in terms of whether we'd stay. Um, so it's interesting to, to have gained any kind of academic capital while still some other people are finding I think the things that we cared most about the writing, uh, like the debaters. Um, I think in terms of metaphor, actually, I, I um, sort of like metaphor. Um, and even I always write in metaphor. So, um, and I feel like the, um, sometimes people are like, metaphors are violent. And I'm like, maybe, maybe they are. <laughs> maybe they are sometimes. But I, I think metaphors are, uh, you know, we, we, we think in those ways. And, and I, think that's, I think that's a good thing. Um, so I, I just think that there's certain times when metaphor is violent and erases. I think slavery, for example, is a big metaphor. Um, you see it in lots of, right. I mean, Karl Marx uses slavery as a metaphor, um, for the exploitation of the laboring class. And then in his other writings, he realizes that that's what he's doing. And he says, um, no, there's actual real chattel slavery and that's different. Right. And but it's so tempting. Um, and you see that in a lot of philosophers, they talk about slavery in this very philosophical sense. And, and I think um, chattel slavery in particular as um, experienced, um, you know, saltwater slavery and, and then inheritance of slavery, um, slaver, um, enslaved status. I, I think these are really specific conditions. Um, they even vary, right, from, from let's say South America to North America and the Caribbean. And, um, and so when people use it as a sort of metaphor for a, a general lack of freedom in this really broad sense, I think that that is really harmful. Um, so, I, so I think there's certain things I try to avoid in the classroom, getting back to your question, um, mm -hmm. such as using slavery that way. Um, decolonization, if anything, it has many definitions. And um, what's interesting in the classroom is to unpack all of them. Um, without sort of saying you you can only do it this way according to this article that you know <laughs> um yeah did i uh, get to your your question yeah yeah you definitely did um tina do you have a fall i have a million follow-up questions but you can you can have a turn um, okay. <laughs> there's um a climate change studies minor that you have that you're part of right mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to use that as a sort of pedagogical space to continue the discussion. Um, one thing that you've written, um, a ghetto land pedagogy, an antidote for settler environmentalism, um, uh, where 
you make connections uh, with um, the land trust um, and universities being on stolen land, and you use UC Berkeley as, as one of those and other land grant institutions, um, and also um, missionary schools in parts of Africa. Um, but you know, all of us who teach anywhere are on stolen land. And that has, um, I think, uh, direct uh, implications for how we teach um, environmental studies. And um, so could you talk more about what you do, how, how your theory coincides with, um, and your thinking about space and location, social location, political location, how that um, affects what you do in the in the classroom when you're teaching on climate change and environmental studies. I thank you, thank you for that question. Um, so um, so first, uh, I guess I want to say like the climate change studies um, minor was really started by Jane Tyrannis, who's a paleoclimatologist at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography here, and um, I'm just lucky to be part of it. And mm -hmm. um, and we did. Uh, launched this um, climate change collective, uh, climate change solution um, with uh, Dr. Chandler Purity, who's an African-American ecologist here at UC San Diego. And, um, you know, so, so this is always collective work. Um, and, but in terms of settler pedagogy and settler environmentalism, um, there, I mean, there's people who write about this now in ways um, that I'm just, I'm always reading and learning from. Um, Bailey Marquez, who's a, a new assistant professor at uh, University of Maryland College Park, um, writes about um, settler didactic space and settler pedagogy. Um, and sort of this idea that sometimes the way, um, I guess often the ways that uh, people are educated is within um, this paradigm that ultimately you know, reinforces um, settler supremacy, and that gets the land, obviously. So, um, so she, she writes about um, uh, universities for, uh, you know, in the 19th century um, that were built for African-Americans in the South, um, and the connections to uh, Indian boarding schools and the connections to, uh, let's say, missionary schools in the Kingdom of Hawaii. Um, and so with, with land, um, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm trying to get back. It's a, it's complex, I guess, right now in my mm -hmm. mind, I'm trying to simplify it. Um, it's with, um, I think in environmentalism, there is a way in which we presume that humans and human organizations such as nations and counties and cities um, that are settler organizations have the right to, to fix the problem that they created, right? And, um, and that are sometimes um, presumed not to be the problem that they created or not to be reproducing it. Um, so with the, um, I think with land pedagogy, um, and you know how do we how do we think outside of that? How do we think outside of those paradigms? Um, I'm actually right, co-authoring right now with Teresa Stewart Ambo, who is um, uh, 
a native woman. Um, she's a professor at UC San Diego, but native to Tongva. Uh, she's Tongva, so um, native to the Los Angeles area, as well as uh, Luceno, which is um, just north of San Diego. And we're writing about land acknowledgments. Um, and her ideas around this are really kind of remarkable, which is um, echoing other native writers on this topic. Like, you know, you, how do you go beyond land acknowledgement? Um, what does land acknowledgement mean? It doesn't just mean acknowledging that we're on stolen land. It means that we have a responsibility to that land and to the peoples of that land. And she's, what's really neat is she's writing from an indigenous perspectives because this is how indigenous people always think is they're always guests on somebody's land. Right. Whereas I think settlers think, oh, my goodness, I feel terrible because I'm on stolen land. I'm not on my <laughs> land. And indigenous people are often not on their lands. Right. And they they're they're um, they're they're home um, ancestral territories. And, and so but they understand themselves as in relationship to the land that they're on and to the people who are also there. Um, and so she thinks about how the universities or that occupy um, indigenous land have a responsibility to those lands and to those peoples. And I think that is very different than sort of focusing on the guilt. I think guilt recenters the, the aggressor or the, or the, the entity that is doing harm. Yeah. Um, and um, so, so I, I, I'd like to learn a lot from that, you know, from indigenous concepts of what does it mean to be a guest on, a, on land and what are the responsibilities? And, that connects back to climate change and the environment, right? Which is, it's not about sustaining. So I, I don't have a problem with sustainability in principle, but I do always like to ask like, who are we sustaining? You know, <laughs> what are we sustaining? Are we sustaining our, our are we sustaining capitalism? <laughs> you know, <laughs> is, that, is that what we're trying to do? Are we sustaining this, this, um, these settler arrangements? Are we sustaining settler institutions? Or are we talking about a sustainability from an indigenous perspective, um, which is about sustaining those, you know, healthy relationships between human and non-human persons in the land. Mm -hmm. Thanks. That reminds me, a couple of years ago, I was doing some research on these um, self-identified woke capitalists who are trying to like, do well by doing good um, in San Francisco at this, mm. there's this um, conference called SOCAP, which stands for social capitalism at mm. the intersection of money and meaning mm. in San Francisco. And they were, I mean, they did land acknowledgements constantly. It was these hedge funds, hedge fund guys up there uh, atoning for um, being settlers and then saying, you know, and here's what we're gonna do for reparation. Um, we're going to do our startup on this reservation over here and like put people into jobs. So I'm, so this, this is a lead up into my question about sort of commodification of discourses by, by capital. Um, so there's this, the word we keep talking about decolonization is not a metaphor. I mean, I, for the sake of, for, I just want to think about a scene in it. There's this moment where, um, uh, Eve Tuck is addressing an audience of liberal arts educators, um, about um, their complicity with settler colonial projects and that specifically making this argument that the liberal arts tries to make the settler indigenous to the land he occupies. Mm. And the audience is like, mm -hmm nodding along. And um, Professor Tuck realizes that they've misheard her as sort of celebrating 
her as like saying, yes, you are now indigenous to the land you occupy. So my question going off of what, what we've been talking about is, is kind of two parts. The first is a simple one, which is about what a person does in a moment when a critique has been so grossly mutilated and then absorbed into the normative discourse. Um, I think I'm particularly interested in that question insofar as it seems like um, maybe there's a counter reading to the scene in that piece, but there are audiences who get really titillated off being told about their complicity. So like there's a tell me how bad I am. And then this moment of cathartic release, it's masochistic and having recognized it. So business can kind of continue as usual now that there's been this move to innocence. Um, so I wonder like if you have thoughts about what it looks like to refuse those circuits of absorption or to evade them. Yeah. I mean, it's just interesting how you're talking about this, this encounter, if you will, because it is so gendered and sexualized, you know, and, and like, you know, people are, are activated and, um, and there, there is a way in which um, commodification or consumption of discourses, particularly like, you know, queer, brown, black, um, femin feminized discourse, discourses are commodified in ways that are you know, very reminiscent of um, sort of uh, forms of um, heterosexual um, fetish, right, I'll say. Um, so I think that's really interesting. Um, yeah, I think that moment is really fascinating. And, and I, so maybe I'm misunderstanding you on, on purpose, but, but I'm sort of really interested in like SOCAP. And, and I, I think that's, I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing. I think it's, it's a problematic thing but I find those things really interesting. Um, Cause I feel like, yeah, they're infiltrating us, but we're also infiltrating them. Mm. And uh, I mean, that's sort of what it's about. Like there, um, unless you can create a pure space somewhere and defend it. I, I mean, that's possible, I suppose. I, I'm just not, I'm just not in any of those spaces. Everything I do is, is this weird, these, these really weird places of, of, um, of, um, contamination, I'll say. Yeah. Um, you know, so, so uh, I, I think it's like miscegenation, right? It's, it's kind of like, um, I'm not an anti-miscegenist, right? <laughs> so, um, so, so those moments of misrecognition, I think they're very frustrating, um, especially if you're the speaker and you have something important that you're trying to tell people. Um, and I also think they go in unexpected ways. And, and I, I, I don't, well, so let me give you an example. So, um, so we're, we're convening this group right now called the Indigenous Futures Lab. And um, it's, it's a bunch of faculty right now because we feel, feel like faculty, hopefully then we'll, um, once we collectivize, we'll attract resources for graduate students, we'll attract resources for community projects. Um, but, um, you know, Teresa Ambo, who I mentioned earlier is part of that, um, Gloria Chacon, there's a bunch of people, um, but I, I guess, uh, uh, the, the example, I might return to this example later because it's really interesting, but Keolu Fox is a native uh, Kanaka Maoli, native Hawaiian um, genomicist. He's a genomic scientist. And, and really it's his phrase, uh, Indigenous Futures Lab. And, um, you know, he called me the other day. He said, hey, I'm going to Vancouver to meet with some venture capitalists. <laughs> mm. And um, and they're really interested in this idea of data sovereignty that I've been talking about. And, and he's talking about how do communities, um, whether they're indigenous or urban or, you know, 
otherwise um, both marginalized from data science and mined for data science, um, how do they come to control and benefit from, in a financial way, from their genetic data? And how do they come to decide what questions of their genetic data they want to ask, but, but, to, but, to, but to benefit from their data? Um, and he's calling this data sovereignty, right? It, it's pretty neat. And of all people, like there's these um, venture capitalists who are interested in that. Hmm. And I'm all for it. Like, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. I don't know if it, you know, um, I don't, I don't, I don't see liberation at the end of that, that path, but I do, I do see possibility. Um, and I think that that has always been um, sort of, uh, for me, these, these uh, tactical projects of abolition and decolonization. I mean, you think about even abolitionists, you know, Frederick Douglass had that whole debate, long debate with, um, oh, I forgot, his uh, prominent white abolitionist about the US Constitution mm-hmm. and whether it was any good, whether it could be used. And, and Douglass's opinion was that it can be used. Like there is something in the Constitution that will forward the cause of abolition. And, um, and his uh, friend and um, collaborator was much purer about it. You know, he thought the Constitution was a tainted document. Um, so, so I, I tend to align with um, the, the view that the Constitution does have some possibilities in it, um, even if it is a tainted document. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of goes back to, oh. Go ahead. It kind of goes back to the um, text as Pokemon cards that can transform beyond their authors. And be mobilized in different ways. Up, up, and down, right? Like the the transformation yeah. of Pokemon. Um, you know, it's sort of like, um, you know, can you become a better version of yourself? And then mm-hmm. can you also devolve? And and I think I think all those things are always happening. Mm-hmm.